This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I'm your host. Today, I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. I got the chance to talk with Austin Channing Brown. She's an author as well as a speaker and a professional who talks a lot about racial reconciliation and things like that, especially within the Christian context. I don't have too many announcements for you. I do want to remind you that if you like the show, you can support us on Patreon. You can find that at cxmhpodcast.com slash support. There's tons of rewards and things like that for various levels of support so feel free to check that out as always connect with us on social media all that good jazz you know the drill so we'll get you right into the episode here is my conversation with austin channing brown hey welcome back to the show i'm so excited today to be joined by austin channing brown austin is a writer speaker and practitioner who helps schools nonprofits, and religious organizations practice genuine inclusion her writing has appeared in outlets like christianity today relevant sojourners and the christian century austin how are you today Oh, I'm so good. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. And if I'm not mistaken, a new mom? I am a new mom. Nice. Well, we can we can bond. I'm actually a new father, so. Are you? How old is your little one? Um, he is like two and a half weeks now. So Oh my god. By the time this comes out, he'll be 3 weeks old, so. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, I remember that so well. <laughs> yeah, how long ago was that for you? Uh, my little one is eight months. Okay. So. Okay. So you've yes. got some, any, uh, any tips for me? Oh my word. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Is your little one sleeping? Um, for the most part. Yeah. We're trying okay. to, we're trying to get it mostly to sleeping at night. You know, he's right. still sleeping a lot during the day. So we're trying right. to transition that, but he's doing all right. He's good. You know, I don't have anything to really base it on, but it seems like he's doing well. Good, good, good. I remember my husband and I were zombies at two weeks. So. Yeah. We're, we're doing all right. It's good. Uh, you know, day by day. I hear that. <laughs> well, you're not here necessarily to talk about parenting. Uh, you're here to talk about your brand new book, I'm Still yeah. Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. This book is phenomenal. I've read it one and a half times now already, uh, and it hasn't even come out yet. So uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. L- let me ask you, I guess, what what inspired you to write this book? Sure. I, um, you know, I really, one, just love memoirs. Um, but I feel like a lot of popular memoirs are um, written by folks who grew up in an all-Black space. So they grew up in the South, or they grew up in the hood, or... Um, and then they sort of like transitioned into uh, dominant culture or suddenly became aware yeah. of dominant culture and having to navigate that. Um, and I just wanted to make space for the story that a lot of 
black folks have, which is having always been around white folks yeah. <laughs> um, and the difficulties that come with that, right? Very, very different um, from, from growing up like in the hood or something like that, um, but no less valuable, I think. And so, um, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of write a book that discussed um, those of us who are the only black person in our workplace or the only black person in our school or the classroom or the yeah. neighborhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. And really wanting to bring to light the, the unique struggle that that is. Yeah. Well, I guess I kind of jumped right into the book, but since yeah. you, know, you kind of talk about your background and the book largely is a memoir, can you tell us a little bit for folks that may be unfamiliar with you or this is the first time they've ever heard of you? I mean, can you give us a little bit of that backstory? Um, I wish there was more to tell. <laughs> um, I really, my upbringing is like so super average. Um, I um, grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. There were like a handful of, of other black families around. I've attended private Christian schools my entire life. Um, and same thing, like I was very rarely the only student of color, um, like in the school, like I don't think I've ever had that, but um, I have been the only one like in a high school classroom or one of just a handful in an elementary school. And, and when I got to college, just became really passionate about racial justice um, and started, you know, really studying it, started preaching about it. Um, I got connected with Brenda Salter McNeil, who's been practicing and teaching about racial reconciliation for 20 plus years now. Um, and so I learned a lot from her and was really mentored by her. Um, and then have just held a bunch of odd jobs, <laughs> <laughs> but all that circle around justice. So I've worked at foster care agencies, a homeless shelter, um, big brothers, big sisters. I've done fundraising. Uh, I've done short-term missions. I've worked at churches and higher ed. So <laughs> I've bounced around a lot. Yeah. Um, but always, always just sort of looking at the themes of particularly racial justice. Um, yeah. And so I just felt like it was time to sort of bring all that I've experienced in all of those different locations together in, in one book. Yeah. So let me ask, I mean, for people that aren't really, you know, haven't studied a lot about racial justice or things like that, right? When you say black dignity in a world made for whiteness, right? Um, yeah. That's, I'm willing to bet, I've never done a survey, but I'm willing to put a lot of money <laughs> on the fact that our audience by and large are, you know, white Christians or uh -huh. white mental health professionals, somewhere okay. in, in that realm. So what do you mean a world made for whiteness? Yeah, I, one, I mean that, um, and it's sort of in a very tangible sense <laughs> and that um, like I, I have attended one school getting my master's degree where I was in the majority. Um, but every other educational experience I've had and almost every other work experience I've had has been in a predominantly white space, a predominantly white organization, school, yeah. all that. And I don't think a lot of white folks realize how much those spaces are created for them. Um, and I think a lot of white folks have struggled, not a lot, but there are some white folks who have really struggled with my title. Yeah. Um, because for exactly what you said, like they've just, they just never, they have never um, asked themselves, you know, yeah. whether or not, you know, the spaces that, that they occupy cater to them in any way. And so I try really hard, you know, I spend the entire book really 
trying to give concrete examples, trying to give tangible examples of how this world really does still function um, for for white folks um, and people of color often just have to maneuver around of those spaces. Yeah. One, one example that, I mean, it was kind of the first thing there that I hadn't even thought of, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about how your parents named you Austin because right. it sounded like a white guy's name. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I was in a, in the library. I was, I was a kid and very used to people mistaking me for being a boy. Um, that was, that happened all the time. And, and I knew that other people weren't like losing their minds. Like, how dare you not realize that Austin is a girl's name too, because it was the era, you know, the late eighties, early nineties was the era of personalized trinkets (laughs) and everything (laughs) had a kid's name on it, (laughs) like keychains and cups Mm -hmm. and right. All the things. And I would always go search for my name and my name would always be in the boys section. If it was there at all, it would be in the boys. And I was like, Oh, this is like really a boy's name. Um, So that was, it came with its minor annoyances like that. But um, it wasn't until I was in a library and the librarian, when I handed her my card, didn't believe that my name was Austin and asked me if I was sure about my name and my library card. And I thought, you know what? I, what, why? <laughs> why did my parents do this to me? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> and so I marched over to my mother and I said to her, what, what's the deal? I, you know, help me understand this. And she said, you know, one day you're going to have to look for jobs. You're going to have to apply for a college. And she was like, we knew that if someone just saw your application, if they had never met you, they would assume you're a white man. And we just wanted to make sure that we got you to the interview. Hmm. She said, now, once you get there, I'm sure you'll like blow everyone away. Like you're going to be so great, but we just had to get you to the interview. Yeah. And I'll tell you, that is so so real, like there are a million studies on this, right? <laughs> of, uh, um, from jobs to rentals to Airbnb, like there are so many studies about this um, that if you have a black sounding name, it is very easy to be discriminated against. Hmm. And I have black friends who actually, who have like really, really black sounding names, but they shorten it or use a middle name or something to make it sound more white. Yeah. And put that on applications, on cover letters, or when they're calling about like a rental or something, they'll use that name. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I guess I assume a lot of people are probably coming from the same place as me, right? I grew up in the 90s and <laughs> mostly what I remember being taught was, you know, oh, the civil rights movement was a thing that happened or racism was a thing that happened in textbooks right. and things, right? And right. so it was kind of this narrative of, oh, we're past all this now. Right, 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 right. I don't think was only my experience. I think that's by and large. And you talk a lot about in the book about kind of sanitizing our past and making it more comfortable so that we're okay thinking, oh, we're past all this. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I was um, touched by that same era. And and I think that's why I had such a jolting experience in college, because my parents, um, my parents worked really hard to fill in the gaps, right? So in school, you learn about the civil rights movement, sort of. You definitely learn about MLK and Rosa Parks. Those are probably the only names you had to memorize. (laughs) It's sort of boiled down into like three sentences. Slavery was probably one paragraph. (laughs) You know, 
and that's and that's if they weren't called like servants or share or something you know much right. more palatable um and even then you were still learning about white folks <laughs> really like you didn't actually have to memorize a, someone who's was enslaved like you didn't have to memorize their name and so um, my parents tried to sort of like fill in right the gaps but it's so much and you gotta always decide like how much should a kid really know, you know? Right. Um, and so i went on this trip when i was in college that included going to a plantation that was still being operated by the same family who had owned slaves on that plantation Hmm. Um, and then we went to a museum that had a lynching exhibit and, and both of those two things were the first time that I connected emotionally with black history. Hmm. So I knew it and I understood it and, um, had been doing, you know, um, um, the book reports on it, right? Like I still remember doing a book report on Harriet Tubman when I was a kid. So it, it wasn't that I was unaware of the history but it was always so, like like you said, so sanitized and so clean and so um, wrapped up with a bow yeah. um, that I had never really faced, one, just how bad it was. And then two, I had never really taken into account that those those are real folks. Like these yeah. like real people endured this history. And, and it was really helpful for me to, I have found that studying history is really helpful for understanding our present. Yeah. And our present, which isn't really that far removed from our history, right? I mean, I, I think, mean, it's so close. <laughs> even I think recently it's, and this is going to be more, I guess, for me, but I've been more aware of it. It seems like it's more uh, evident, more obvious in the past, let's say, year and a half or two years. Sure. sure. Um, which I know, you know, Plenty of people would say it was never gone. You just didn't see it because you were a white kid growing up. But I think yeah. I feel like we've had to come face to face with a lot of it more more publicly recently. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I agree. I I, I would say that it started because um, we we operated under this like colorblind, everything's fine. <laughs> Let's all hold hands and drink a coke kind of thing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. For, for most of the 90s, and of course, like racism and systemic racism was happening then too. Yeah. Uh, but I think especially within Christianity, we were, we were definitely all on the like kumbaya train for sure. Yeah. And, um, and, and let the world do what the world does, right? Like, like we're not going to touch all those things that are happening out in the world with the, the war on drugs or the, you know, like we're just going to keep... Right all of that at bay um, and just listen to DC talk, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> you know? um, and I would agree that when, when, when Obama became president, um, I think that's when a lot of racism really started to rear its head. And then it's sort of just like been a growing fire since then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what is that like, as you know we're moving through and it kind of seems like we all just agreed to pretend like we were fine and none of it ever <laughs> happened really right. uh, but then to have it come kind of roaring back in like a hey i'm gonna come punch you in the face kind of way yes. I mean, what is that yeah. like to navigate through it's really um jolting you know um i I, I, I confess, even even as I talk about, you know, the past and talk about how the past isn't really the past and how we have to deal with racism right now and all those things, America can still surprise me. And I, I hate it, but it can. <laughs> you know, I, 
I never thought that there would be a day when a white supremacist would walk into a church and just kill black folks because they're black. Hmm. Right. Like that, yeah. that is, that is straight out the fifties and sixties, you know, yeah. when you would bomb churches and, um, you know, bomb the locations that bomb and NAACP offices. And, you know, like that, that was supposed to be a bygone era. I right. thought, right. um, I never, I never imagined, but you know what? I, I still remember a news anchor coming on TV and announcing that a black church had just experienced this. And in my gut, I knew that it was about race. And it, and when you think about it, it could have been about anything, right? Like it could have been a domestic dispute. It could have been like, there's so many, so many things right, sadly right. that it could have been, but something just, I just knew. And, um, and that's still, it's still really painful. You know, like I, I feel a lot of things, like I feel anger and I feel frustration and, um, but there's also a tremendous amount of sadness um, that there could be so much hate yeah. um, for, for a body, for a brown body. Like it, it really, I try not honestly to stop and think about it for too long um, yeah. because it, it is, it's, it's, it's really, really painful. And, and then to try to digest the history of that hatred and how far that hatred has been willing to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, it is, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. We did an episode a couple months back about race and faith and mental health and kind of how all those wow. kind of came together and our guests, they both talked about um, racial trauma, which was a term that I had never yeah. really heard before, but they were seeing a lot of in kind of the clients that they were seeing and, I think that was pretty eye-opening to me that, I mean, when we think about trauma, usually we think about PTSD or something like that, but to think right. about it in uh, terms of, you know, racial trauma is, I think was, I don't know, it kind of left me like speechless. I just let them talk for a while, which was good anyway, but yeah. you know, I kind of had to stop and process that. So you talk some about, I mean, right there, you talked about kind of this hatred, knowing that it's still there. And <laughs> what you write in the book, you write about niceness. <laughs> right? There's one, I mean, you yep. said, when you believe niceness disproves the presence of racism, it's easy to start believing bigotry is rare and that the label yeah. racist should only be applied to mean-spirited, intentional acts of discrimination. Right. So yeah. can, you, can you talk about that? Because I, I do feel like most of the time we think like, oh, that's not me. That's like one guy, right? That <laughs> right. Talked about. That's one guy. Yeah. And the rest yep. of us are mostly fine. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so good. Yeah. So, um, you're, you're getting to, to why I wrote this book, right? No, no, no one who would ever consider walking into a church and shooting it up and regardless of who the color of the people there, um, are going to pick up this book and read it, right? Like that's not, <laughs> right. that's not who this is for. Right. Um, and, and I, I wanted to try to express to those who already care about racial justice, who are already on board, who um, intentionally hire people of color, who are looking for people of color to bring to the conference, um, who attend a multiracial church on purpose, um, who church planted just to have a multi, right? Like the folks who are, who are already like, yes, let us pursue justice. Yeah. Um, and trying to give a window into how racism operates could still 
even in those spaces. Um, I feel like it's it's so much easier to point to the bigot, right? To right, the right. to the guy carrying the KKK sign. It is much harder to see how harm can be hidden by niceness. Hmm. Um, and I think I think this is a concept that becomes clearer, or that maybe we're less resistant to. Um, when we think about it in the context of a different kind of relationship. So if you think about being in a fight with a sibling or right, being in an uh, uh, unhealthy relationship with an in-law or right, yeah. um, attending an unhealthy church or being in a relationship with an unhealthy pastor, um, right? and you think about all the times that you've been around each other and you've been nice, but harm was still being done, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like, sure, we can sit in a room together and we can laugh and we can talk, but that niceness didn't stop harm from happening. Yeah, the same is true in in relationships around around race. That it, it doesn't require meanness um, for racism and for racist decisions to still be made. Um, and that is is why I call this in a world made for whiteness. Because so often our leadership teams are still all white. And, and the reason that our leadership teams are still all white is because we have put whiteness on a pedestal without realizing it. Hmm. And so, so we look for similar characteristics in one another, a same way of thinking, a same way of talking, a same way of, and we, and we look for connections with one another. So what kind of music do you like? And where do you go to hang out? And what do you do for fun? And, um, and those things have a tendency to perpetuate themselves, right? You find that you you end up just looking for yourself right. <laughs> um, and your best friend and your, right? People that you know, people in your network. Um, and before you know it, you have created a culture where whiteness is is what's being celebrated. Um, and even even though you're nice, even though you're nice to everyone, <laughs> even though you're kind, and even though you would never say a mean word to anybody, um, niceness doesn't prevent harm. Hmm. It's kind of the difference, I guess, between like individual bigotry and like systemic racism, right? Exactly, exactly. And I, I think one of the best examples of this in the book is a teacher that I had when I was in high school and she was so darling. We loved her. She taught a religion class and she cussed all the time. So we were like in love. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I could not get enough of both of those things. Um and she she one day confessed that she was using seating charts in the classroom to separate students of color. Hmm. And she hadn't really like truly been aware of that until she um, didn't recognize that someone's name was black, <laughs> right? Like it was a quote unquote, um, white American sounding name. Yeah. Um, and so when the students walked in and sat down and they're assigned seats, she saw these two black girls sitting together and her first thought was, oh man, they're going to be disrespectful. They're not going to pay attention. They're just going to talk and play this whole semester. And she caught herself mid thought. Yeah. And she was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I have been using this as a way to make sure that students of color don't sit next to each other. She was always nice to me. She never did anything wrong to me. And I'm sure she was nice to other students of color, but she was still using her racial bias. She was creating a policy, right? She was making decisions around a racial bias. 
And so that's, that's really what I'm trying to get at that. um, Yeah. That niceness doesn't, doesn't prevent harmful thoughts, harmful actions um, from playing out before us. Yeah. You, you also talk some about kind of this idea of racial reconciliation and kind of what we think that is sometimes (laughs) and what maybe that actually looks like. Um, Can you talk some about that? Yeah, I, um, there's a lot of folks who don't use the term racial, racial reconciliation anymore. And I totally respect that. I truthfully probably use racial justice more often than I use the phrase racial reconciliation. Hmm. But I feel like those who do use the term should like put the potency back in it, (laughs) like should put the the revolution that that should contain um, back into the word. So you think about being reconciled with God, right? Like that is, that's supposed to be massive, right? Like that's supposed to be extraordinarily transformative. That is supposed to be filled with wonder and delight and goodness and um, a different way of being in the world, of seeing other people, of loving other people. Like it's supposed to be huge, right? Like we have a whole testament about how big (laughs) this is supposed to be, right? And how it's supposed to change our lives and change the way we see one another. And and unfortunately, we we don't carry that same level of revelation of being reconciled with God as being reconciled with one another. Mm-hmm. When it comes to just one another, we're content with like a coffee date or really good diversity numbers or having one black friend yeah. or or having an MLK service every year or right. Like we, like we boil it way, way down um, to its simplest measurement. Yeah. And, and for me, I just want to, I want to encourage, I want to, I want to invite the church into something larger. Like if you are, if you're still using the term reconciliation, let's, let's put how revolutionary that should be um, back into that term. Let's think about, how equitable we can possibly be. Let's think about how just we can possibly be. Like how, yeah. how, how far could we take this? How, how upside down could we be compared to the racism in the world? You know, yeah. how, how opposite could we be? <laughs> um, and, and, and really wanting that idea to light a fire under us Um as we pursue racial justice, um, because right now the ways that we use reconciliation um, are are so flat um, and so lacking in any sort of excitement. <laughs> so, what would I mean when you say that? Obviously, I mean we've got you know diversity hires and things like that yeah. that are kind of yeah. the what can we do but still be pretty much comfortable. I mean, what what, what, right. would, what would it look like to have true reconciliation. I mean, what would that take for people listening? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to be a part of finding out, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder what it would look like to be a part of a ministry, a nonprofit organization, um, whose decision making isn't derived based on who gives how much money. Hmm. You know, I'd love to see boards that are 
truly diverse boards that are like 51% people of color. I'd love to see, um, and, and not just people of color, but folks from different walks of life, right? Folks who yeah. didn't go to seminary and folks who didn't graduate from high school, folks who um, used to be incarcerated and, and folks who are doctors, folks who, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. to, like to really celebrate all that we are um, and, and, and all that God is doing in the world and to bring as much diversity as possible around our tables and decision-making and investment. Um, so I think about, um, let's say like the publishing industry um, and particularly Christian publishing is so, <laughs> so white. Oh my Lord. Um, right. And so I think what would it look like to invest in women of color the same way that white women are invested in? Yeah. Right. What would it, what would, what would it look like to allow women of color to have that one book that failed and then continue to invest in them the same way white folks are allowed to have a book that failed and then like keep investing in them, yeah. you know, like, 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 right. Like that kind of equity, like what would it look like to, to actually, to, <laughs> to, this sounds so simple, but really what would it look like to actually treat white folks and people of color the same, Yeah, you know, to give them the same investment, to give them the same opportunities, to give them the same number of times to fail or to make a mistake. Um, to give them the same opportunities before they're quote unquote ready, um, you know, like what what would it look like? And um, yeah, that that question is exciting to me. And being a part of organizations that are trying, right, that are imperfect but are trying, um, is exciting to me. Yeah, I think you were talking about publishing. I was even thinking about. Um, I feel like it's been a big thing recently, but you know, conferences, big Christian conferences, oh, every time, you know, man. gosh, it's like 95% white dudes. Isn't it know? the truth? Like, Isn't it the truth? And so many of them are saying the exact same thing. <laughs> right. And I'm like, so we can have like five guys talk about prayer, but we can only have one person talk about racial justice. I don't understand. Yeah. Like, right? like why can't we have, five people talking about racial justice and one person talking about prayer. Like I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. Um, but yeah, that's another great example. Um, I, I wish I could come up with a, like a really clear example um, around mental health. I, um, I used to, I, I used to work in higher ed most recently worked in higher ed and um handling mental health crisis was a huge part of my job, like right in the middle of crisis. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I wish I had, I wish I had more to say about that, but I do wonder, um, I guess just like off the top of my head, I wonder about access. I wonder about opportunities that are given or taken away. Right. So when a student, yeah misses right and is gone and um is getting help are they treated the same way as white students who have to miss yeah um you know i i, I do I, I wonder i wonder about that 
We even in that last episode I was telling you about, we talked about even just the numbers of mental health professionals, kind of the percentages of different races, different ethnicities, right? And how it's still overwhelmingly, you know, white, I mean, really white men, but then white men and women, you know, and and what kind of what that representation says to people who are walking in trying to find some type of things like that. You know, it's so similar in terms of kind of the, the powers that be. You and know what? I've never to help people. Yes, yes, yes. I've ne- I've never said this to anyone. So you're going to be the first person I say this to. Oh, please be good. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're going to say something really bad, really bad at me. No, no, no. It's personal. It's just something I've never shared before. So, so this is common knowledge. I um not common knowledge. I, I, this isn't a secret. Um, so I really struggle with postpartum depression. Um, after I had my my baby. Um, yeah. and. Um, but what I have never told anyone is that I was offered the opportunity to like go see a therapist to try and talk through, um, what was happening with me and I didn't do it. And the reason I didn't do it was because the only options were white women. Yeah. And I really wanted to talk to somebody who looked like me. Like if I was going to do it, I wanted to talk to someone who understood black family dynamics, who understood, um, what I was thinking about in terms of having a black little boy, um, particularly in this era that we're yeah. living through, you know, and, and I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't go. In fact, I, I made the appointment and then canceled because I just didn't have it in me to try and explain to somebody what it's like to live in, in, in a, in a, um, in a black girl's body. Yeah. When you talk about having a black son and the things that come with that. I mean, you write there's one chapter in the book. That's a letter to, at the time, your future son, right? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, because I think some people just having listened to that would think, well, what do you, I mean, what do you mean? What's sure. the difference? For sure. And what all comes with that? Yeah. So um, my husband and I, we already think about what we will do the first time someone calls him the N word. We already think about what school we will send him to, what neighborhood we will live in, because we don't want him to be the only black child in, you know, an entire school or in his classroom. Um, I have had a really, really difficult time um, since he's been born watching videos um, that are showing um, how unarmed black men are being beaten or killed in the streets. Yeah. and, you know, I, I kind of consider it part of my job to be, like, in the know. Um, and I'm still, like, aware of them, but I can't I can't watch them. I can't read the transcript. I can't. Like, I just can't. Yeah. I'm too tender. Um, I um, wrote on, on Twitter just recently, actually, that it's so interesting to me how often um, folks will stop me and, and like, Target or <laughs> the grocery store um, to stare at my son because he is so dang cute. And part of that is just because he's a baby, right? Right. But, you know what I mean? Um, but but one day um, I'll walk through the store with him and it won't be a neutral experience, right? There, There's going to come a day when I will watch a white woman have fear in her eyes. Um, yeah. I will watch someone like swing their purse to the other side of their body. Um you know, like he will, he will be someone to be feared. 
um, as opposed to someone who is considered cute or a handsome young man or who is, you know, just growing so much or, um, and it's going to happen so soon. It's going to happen so soon. I think about, you know, Tamir Rice, uh, who was only 12 and was still misidentified for being so grown. Um, so yeah, so just, just the ways that the world will treat my son differently. Um, of course, like police encounters, like what will he do the first time he's pulled over and then the second and the third and then the fourth and the fifth, you know, um, and how will I talk to him about that? How will I talk to him about being so proud of who he is and still having to be careful as he walks through the world? Yeah. So you write some in the book. There's another paragraph that I kind of want to read because I thought it was fantastic, but it was about um, kind of being comfortable, right? We've talked about this idea of not wanting to address things because it makes us uncomfortable or things like that. (laughs) And this, this paragraph here says, our only chance at dismantling racial injustice is being more curious about its origins than we are worried about our comfort. It's not a comfortable conversation for any of us. It is risky and messy. It is haunting work to recall the sins of our past. But is this not the work we have been called to anyway? Is this not the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth and inspire transformation? It's haunting, but it's also holy. Mm. I think that's. I really believe that. I really believe that. You know, um, um, are you familiar with the New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's book? Um, I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. So she um, she spends the bulk of her book talking about um, the history of racial injustice in the criminal justice system, particularly around laws that we've created. Yeah. And so her book, it can, it can be really thick because she's like, here's how this law was created. Here's the circumstances that surrounded it. Here's the results of that law, right? So yeah. <laughs> um, it is super informative, but she spends the first two chapters, I think, just talking about America's history with black folks. And it is so packed and so good. But I think somewhere in in that first or second chapter, she says, you know, every time there is racial progress, like every time we move forward, there is a backlash that happens. Yeah. So she says, right, so we ended slavery and we, we, we did like reconstruction, right? And then there's a backlash to reconstruction, right? And we end yeah. up with black codes and the new Jim Crow, right, Jim Crow. Um, and, and, and she says in that book, you know, we'll see, essentially, I'm like super paraphrasing, but essentially <laughs> she says, we'll see what happens after Obama, right? So we yeah. have this major jump in racial progress. We'll see. Will history continue to repeat itself? Where we will we have another backlash, or will we actually choose to move forward? Yeah. And we now have our answer. Yeah. But that's why I I that's that's really where that that sentiment comes from that you just read. That it is so hard. It's so hard to go back through history. It's so hard, and it is so haunting and so frightening. And what we what 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 has been done to black folks and other people of color is just brutal. Like it is just brutal, but it's also informative for who we could be for whether or not we will choose to be different the next time around, you know? 
Yeah. And that's why I really harp on knowing our history and reading voraciously. And because our history is so, so informative for both how we got here and who we'll choose to be next. Yeah, I think that's so good in terms of, you know, needing to be uncomfortable. I mean, having those conversations yeah. and learning from our history. I mean, even we talked about it a little bit, but even just the name of your book, you know, a, <laughs> in a world yep. made for whiteness, you know, there's a yep. big chunk of people that you're going to say, well, I'm not reading that. That's, you know, yep. I, did, I didn't do anything, right? Which yep. tends to be kind of this reflex of like, well, I shouldn't have to be uncomfortable or you know, right. we're not doing anything wrong. But I think that's, that's so good. I wish there was... Um... It would be nice if there was an easier way. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so nice. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think we often talk about the pursuit of racial justice in terms of pain. And there is a lot of pain. You know, recognizing injustice and being honest about that is, is a painful experience. But working on it together, finding community and cohorts, um, who have chosen to rally around an issue, who are learning about an issue together, who are for change, who are educating others. Like there's this work is also filled with joy. Yeah. And 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 that's why I wanna, you know, say that it's haunting, but it's also holy. Like yeah. it transforms who we are, it transforms our relationships, it makes you come alive. Like you have a purpose that is larger than just you, you know, yeah. you are fighting for communities and with communities, you are not alone, you are not isolated. Um, and it's really beautiful work too. Um, and I wish I had big enough words to convey um, that the discomfort, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know what I mean, is not all there is. Um, it's part of it. But there's more, there's yeah. more. Yeah. Sometimes when when I'm having conversations like this, I, I just because it's kind of the world I'm in, I draw parallels to kind of the process of therapy, right? When you yeah. Go in, I mean, it's, and I've been on both sides of it, right? But uh -huh. it, I mean, it sucks a lot of the time. You have, you can't just, you know, if you say, hey, I want to get better at this thing or I want to deal with this thing, you don't get to just say, well, I'll just kind of pretend it didn't happen and move forward. A lot of times you have to <laughs> right. work through it, right? And so, right. I mean, so I feel like there's a lot of parallels of for real change, real growth to happen in any area, there has to be that tension of, well, we have to walk through the parts that suck, the parts that oh, are really I painful. Oh, I love that. Um, yes. Yes. Are there, in, is there any other topics you want to hit before we kind of wrap up? You know, um, there's only one question that I've really been liking the answer to because, I don't know, this might be even the, the next book that I write, not that I'm like itching to write <laughs> another one, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> but as I, as I think about, um, you know, our conversations on racial justice and we, we, I, I feel like we're, we're entering an era where we're doing a much better job of talking about, um, of talking about whiteness, of talking about white guilt, of talking about white supremacy, yeah. Um, of talking about right racism and really identifying um, a lot of that. And I, I think I just want to make sure that we don't lose the conversation about the dignity of blackness. Yeah. You know, I feel like, um, I feel like in a funny way, you know, white supremacy can creep in even to a conversation about racial justice, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where we still just talk about white folks. <laughs> it's like, well, 
maybe we should like talk about both. Yeah. <laughs> we should talk about everyone. Um, and, and that's why I think this project is particularly, um, why I'm particularly proud of it. Um, because it isn't just, you know, white folks are bad, <laughs> you know, it isn't just, you know, like down with whiteness. Um, it is also the beauty of blackness, the beauty of our culture, the beauty of our hair and our authors and our, um, churches and our spiritual depth and, you know, and, yeah. and really an invitation, um, yeah, an invitation to note how empty whiteness can be, hmm. um, but that we can we can do both. We can we can name what whiteness is, and we should, and we could, should continue to do that. But I think it's important that we also celebrate blackness and celebrate people of color and celebrate marginalized bodies, because um, I think I think we miss part of the holiness, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, if we never get to, to, to what we can celebrate together. Yeah. yeah. Hey, if you want to connect with Austin, you can find her at austinchanning.com on Twitter at Austin Channing, or you can pick up this book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. All of those links will be in the show notes. If you want to connect with me, as always, you can find me at robert vorcom or on social media at Robert Vore. Austin, do you have any closing thoughts for us today before we wrap up? No, this was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, spending some time with us today. And uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.